Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 455th show of ROI. Our noted guest for today's show is Dr. Thomas Connors, Associate Professor of History at the University of Northern Iowa, who is going to talk to us about looking for the North American invasion into Mexico City. The history bus for today's show are Rick Sweet and Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zapzaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. David Baker. To begin our show, we would welcome our guest, Dr. Thomas Connors. Hello, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. This is the first segment, which we refer to as Faruk Dinarin, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on the relationship of the U.S. and Mexico, 1847? Okay, so the article is is kind of focuses on... Uh, a trip that I took with a number of uh, some of the alumni from uh, you and I, uh, who are Latinx themselves, or Tejanos, or they're from um, Texas, but of Mexican descent. And we decided to go to Mexico City and look at, in particular, how the war with Mexico and the invasion of Mexico in 1846-47 came to an end, how that's remembered there, and what sort of sites are associated with that. Um, But in part, we're also kind of trying to figure out uh, how to integrate more uh, Latinx history into how we teach American history. And we tried to do that in the colonial period. We tried to do that in the 20th century. Um, But it was pretty clear that this this is a pivot point, that what happens in 1847 um, is kind of the hinge of our relationship with Mexico because that's when we take the biggest cut out of their their territory we take uh, we end up taking about a third to a half of the country in the north um, between uh, the annexation of well we annexed texas in 1845 texas declares independence from mexico in 1836 um, our invasion is 1846 uh, and 47 in which we take basically the southwest uh, beyond texas um, and then we come back for a little bit more on the Gadsden Purchase uh, in 1853. Um, so that clearly is a pivotal point in our relationship with Mexico. We haven't taken any more territory since then, um, but that is, is certainly when, when we, we took the most. Um, and the invasion, when you, when you capture a, a, a country's capital, is usually um, a pretty significant event. I'm not sure, actually, I'm, you know, I'm not sure how much there is to remember uh, the British invasion of Washington in 1814. I'm not sure that that's commemorated in any uh, great play, deal in, in D.C., uh, but in, in Mexico City there is a lot that remembers um, uh, the battles that are fought around the city and then in the center of the city. So we kind of look, we went looking for those. We went looking in particular for uh, uh, Busco, which is a, a, a battle that was fought around uh, a convent and kind of the story there ends up revolving around this group um, that has become famous more or less in the last, I suppose, 40 or 50 years called the San Patricios, uh, who also kind of get into the heart of this story of this, this war with Mexico um, in the sense that they were Americans. They were 
mainly Irish immigrants fighting for uh, the American army who switch sides, who end up fighting um, with the Mexican army. Uh, and so they are considered, you know, obviously deserters and, and join the, the other side. Um, but one of the reasons they did that is because the United States at that point was so anti-Catholic that uh, that appears, appears to have found that rather offensive. Um, so they are, from the United States' point of view, we after they lost in Churubusco, um, they were, you know, uh, they became prisoners of war, but they were considered deserters. They were put on trial and they were, they were hanged um, uh, in, I think, well, it's actually the largest hanging in American history, but because it was done at two different times or two different places, uh, the one, uh, the, the hanging of um, the Lakota or Dakota up in, in Mankato actually is, is more. Um, so we're interested in those and how they're remembered in, you know, the United States, we're beginning to remember them. In Mexico, they're seen as heroes. They're called martyrs uh, on the plaques and the memorials that have been put up to them. So we, we're trying to follow them a little bit because that's that's kind of an interesting story. Another one that we're trying to follow are these. Uh, the next big battle was at Chapultepec, which is this. Um, well, it's it served as a palace. It served as many things, but it's on top of this hill in um, uh, what's now a huge park, uh, Chapultepec. And at that time, it was a military academy, uh, and this became the center of a battle. Um, it was a difficult, it's on top of a hill, uh, but the Americans did, were able to, the United States did capture that, uh, that fortification. Um, well, it wasn't really a fort, actually, there was no real fortifications except for the, you know, the cliffs. Um, but the c- cadets at the military academy ended up fighting. Uh, and so in Mexican memory, these little heroes, these were, they, they're seen as little boys, and they're usually portrayed as little boys. They were really about 13 to 20 years old. Um, but they end up either dying in battle, and according to legend, which is almost certainly just legend, one of them, rather than surrender, wrapped himself in the Mexican flag and dove from the cliffs in a suicide dive. Um, that you know has obviously been used uh, in Mexico. This story uh, to inculcate patriotism among the young. So we're interested in their story as well and how they're remembered not only in Chapultepec, uh, in the what's now called the castle, it's now the Natural, National History Museum, um, but also how they're remembered at the bottom of the hill where there's a monument and um, uh, a, an older monument, and then there's a newer one from the 1940s um, where they claim that they're buried, and, and the whole discovery of their remains is something the article goes into as well, um, and then kind of compares that to the remains from the Alamo. So that's another thing that we talk about in the article. And then finally, um, we look at Santa Ana himself, because Santa Ana was the leader of Mexico. He's not only, you know, the villain at the Alamo, he also is the leader of Mexico um, during this invasion. Um, and he's, you know, he's a disastrous leader. He, he retreats and um, it can't really fend off the, the Americans at all. So he's not remembered very fondly. Uh, in, in fact, alone among the leaders of Mexico, really, in the 19th century, um, he's downplayed. He is not given a heroic burial. Um, so we talk about how we tried to get in to see where he was buried, uh, which turns out to be at Guadalupe, where the treaty was signed. Um, and if you're familiar with Guadalupe, uh, and it didn't, even though we knew the name of the treaty was Guadalupe Hidalgo, we did not realize that it had been signed at the 
Catholic shrine of Guadalupe, which is the holiest shrine in Mexico and probably the holiest Catholic shrine in North America. Um, we were trying to see if there's any memory be, uh, of the treaty there, if there's any sign that because they have a museum, they have a lot of history there. That is not something they they talk about there. It would not be a good. Um, they're talking about the Virgin Mary coming to Earth and uh, appearing. Um, so having the Americans dictate a treaty that took away the top third of their country uh, is not you know something they want to remember there. Um, finally, we went to the the American National Cemetery in Mexico, which is actually the oldest. Uh, national cemetery that we have. Uh, it's the first national cemetery. Basically, a couple of years after the war, they they try to gather up what American uh, or U.S. Uh, casualties they can find, um, bury them all in one place, uh, and create this first cemetery. And so this was done in the early 1850s. Uh, what's interesting is, you know, up until then, the government really did not feel it had any obligation to the people that were killed in battle fighting for us. And that goes back to the revolution. We, we don't really know where the mass graves for most of the revolutionary battlefields are. People were not sent home. And you can understand, given the transportation of that time, shipping bodies long distance, uh, unless they were officers or generals, didn't happen. Um, but so this is the first time the, the American government actually thinks that it, that People who died fighting for the United States should get a uh, memorial, and uh, should their bodies should be interred in a in a um, a place that's sacred to the United States. So it begins there. Twelve years later, in the middle of the uh, Civil War, or the beginning of the Civil War, we've already developed a network of national cemeteries. So this really is kind of a big change in how the United States looks at it. So those were kind of the things we were looking at in Mexico City itself. We we're also looking at how this could help us teach. Um, our students and to think of this more uh, in a more balanced approach. So the last part of the article is really is about teaching. And um, there's one painting in particular, a big mural of, uh, of the cadet jumping with the flag wrapped around him, um, which is the perspective on it is pretty intense. It looks like he's falling right towards you. Um, so that really works with students. Am I, have I got the seven minutes yet? Uh, yeah, you've blown by it, son, but that's why. That's a history Seems teachers like do. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. 
Our guest for today's show is Dr. Thomas Connors, Associate Professor of History at the University of Northern Iowa, and we're talking about an article that he wrote called Looking for North American Invasion in Mexico City. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. And Rick, why don't you start us off? Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Uh, Tom, uh, you mentioned that the the various military campaigns that spanned uh, about 15 years or so uh, eliminated a third to half of Mexican uh, northern territory. What was the main objective of the United States? Uh, what was their policy? Why did they they do this? Is this just another piece of manifest destiny? Well, it is Manifest Destiny, right? This is the centerpiece of Manifest Destiny. Um, uh, John O'Sullivan's article, I think, even comes out in the 1840s. Uh, uh, but, well, it depends that you look where Manifest Destiny is going. In the case of the Southwest, um, the intention was to find new states to, to make into slavery states. Uh, it was to spread slavery, because one one of the things we were trying to do at that point, or at least the South was trying to do, was keep the balance between free and uh, states with slavery um, in the Senate. Uh, so to keep a, a balanced number of um, states uh, that are free and states that were slave. Um, and uh, they were running out. I mean, there was an attempt to take Cuba, uh, because Cuba would be great. We could, you know, that be another great state uh, where we could have slavery. Um, there was a theory that really the Cuba was made out of Mississippi River soil that had flown down and <laughs> gathered there. And so really it was ours. Um, so Boy, that's a crock. <laughs> I think that's 1850s. We're talking about that, but they're really trying um, desperate. And, you know, you're thinking, you know, the New Mexico and Arizona is not ideal cotton growing places. Uh, but what they're thinking is they're going to work the mines. Um, and California, they really think, is going to be um, a great place. Uh, and there is kind of a battle when California comes in as a state, which is 1850, really early. Um, uh, that, and it comes in as a free state, and that blows us all. I mean, that's uh, Elliot West, I mentioned, um, his idea about the greater reconstruction. He says, really, what throws everything off balance is taking all this new territory on and trying to incorporate it and it it throws everything out of whack and you know it's interesting when we teach american history then we go back after manifest destiny and we focus on the civil war in um you know in the east basically and what elliot says is that well while the north and south are falling apart um or you know growing apart the west and the north are actually growing together and if you look at the civil war what's going on in the civil war the Transcontinental Railroad, the Homestead Act, um, putting down the, um, uh, the Lakota and Dakota up in Minnesota, that's all pulling the country together, or at least the, the North and the West. Um, but yeah, they are shocked when California turns out to be a free state. It's a darn gold rush. Yeah, curse them. Ed! <laughs> Thanks, John. Um, Tom, was it militarily necessary to take Mexico City or was just was this just sort of the thing that a country did uh, to show symbolically that we're in control now? And 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 did we have any further territorial ambitions besides you know where the lines are today? Okay, um, 
there was, you know, there's a lot of question of how much we, we should take, and I'll, I'll come back to that. Uh, I think the idea was, yeah, if we took Mexico City, the government would have to capitulate and we'd have to have a treaty. And that may have, you know, it would have probably been difficult. I, I think, well, we, we'd certainly invaded um, New Mexico and Arizona and California by then, and presumably we could have held that territory um, uh militarily and prevent it, you know, and kept it uh, and eventually forced the Mexican government. But the Mexican government did not recognize that Texas had left or that we had annexed Texas. So they were still denying that. Um, uh, They didn't see that as legal, either of those moves. Um, So, you know, the only way you can kind of get them to sign a treaty, um, and it turns out the, the guy that was negotiating the treaty for us, Nicholas Trist, was was actually kind of sympathetic to um, the Mexicans and, uh, you know, tried to be as nice as he could. And he was actually trying, you know, he was being recalled by Polk at the time. It's um, an interesting, you know, another interesting side of this. Um, so I don't, I think that was the idea is if we capture the capital, they, and that, that is what happened. Once we captured the capital, we were able to, to dictate a treaty more or less. Um, the rest of, just to answer the second part of that question, to be honest, from my reading, um, we could have taken a lot more of Mexico, and they talked about Baja, California, for example, but <laughs> they wanted to take the less populated area because they did not want to incorporate a lot of Mexicans into the country. Um, so when you read some of the stuff, it's quite horribly racist. Um, yeah, well, you know, in this part, nobody lives there, or very few, we can incorporate them, um, but we don't want, you know, we don't want to throw off the balance of the country by having um, all these Catholics and, and Mexicans in. So, yeah, it doesn't, you know, even Manifest Destiny, if you read the original Manifest Destiny, it's, it's horribly racist. Um, okay, yeah. so along those lines, we have, of course, with the Civil War, a lot of individuals that are Americans that, you know, cut their teeth in war and kind of um, got a lot of glory uh, that rode into the Civil War. Of course, um, the American commander Winfield Scott were in Scott County. This county's named after him. And then you've got individuals like uh, Ulysses Grant and others who fought in the Mexican uh, invasion. Um, when these individuals start rising to kind of, you know, United States attention and some kind of international attention, does Mexico or the remains, do they look at those individuals with scorn or is it just they're trying to hold their own world together? Yeah, I don't think, well, um, Mexico's got its own problems in the 1860s because that's when French is trying to set up the Maximilian um, stuff. So I don't I don't think they pay that much attention to it. I think Grant actually came around and, and decided that this was not a, you know, a war to be proud of. Um, what happens, well, Scott, yeah, let's come, just to say something about Iowa, um, you know, Iowa becomes a state, what, 1846, yep. which is right as the war is beginning. Um, and so, well, honestly, if you have to come up with 98 names or 99 names for counties, um, they use a lot of the Mexican War uh, is on besides Scott and Polk and Taylor Worth. and Fremont, right? Worth, Sarah Gordo. Yep. Where's that, you know, 
Um, I, do we have a Palo Alto somewhere? There's Buena Vista. Again, you know, uh, yeah. a Spanish word in the middle of nowhere, a Spanish title in the middle of nowhere where there were hardly any uh, Latinos, but yes. Yeah. And I think Clay County, surprisingly, is not named for Henry Clay, but for Henry Clay Jr., who lost his life in the in the war. Um, so there's a bunch, yeah, there's a lot of that on our landscape. But otherwise, it, it pretty much the Civil War kind of overwhelms this war, and we forget about it. But in part, I think we want to forget about it. There are lots of people that oppose this at the, at the time. Um, I think Henry David Thoreau, Lincoln, of course, Lincoln very fam- gives a famous speech uh, asking Polk to show him the spot on American soil where American blood had been spilled that supposed was the excuse to begin the war. Um, so, yeah, it's it, at the time, the, a lot of, you know, abolitionists and a lot of people in the North want no part of this. Okay. Rick. Yeah, Tom, I was wondering, uh, how uh, how was the Mexican campaign sold, uh, as, uh, the public relations for the American public? How much support did... Uh, did uh, the American electorate as well as common people uh, hold for this effort? There was a lot of support in the South. Um, it was sold as basically the, well, the, how this war began was that there was a dis- disputed territory. Of course, Mexico disputed Texas entirely. Um, but whether the boundary between Mexico and American Texas was at the Nueces River or the Rio Grande. We think of it, or the Rio Norte in, in Mexico, but um, we, we, you know, today it's the Rio Grande, but this area that's around Brownsville basically now, um, the very southern kind of tier of Texas or um, was disputed. And Polk sent uh, Zachary Taylor and uh, the army in there, and they got into a skirmish with Mexican troops who uh, you know, thought it was part of Mexico, it was disputed land. Um, and that's when Polk said, well, now we have American blood spilled on American soil. And that, you know, people jump up and angry. There were, um, this country was very anti-Catholic at the time. There was a Know-Nothing Party uh, or Native American Party uh, at the time that, that was running against Catholic immigrants. Um, you know, we were burning down convents and churches. So it wasn't too hard to kind of... Uh, rev people up abolitionists people that and lincoln people that uh, opposed the spread of slavery um opposed this war and saw it as so there are plenty of people that um can come out and and explain why they think this is wrong okay ed yeah um to take a little sidetrack here tom um what were what were the roots of this rabid anti-catholicism in 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 the united states well, it goes back to well, it goes back to the founding, and and um, it goes back to the Reformation. Ultimately, this has largely been a you know a Protestant nation in its founding. Now, there's huge exceptions like Maryland, in particular, um, and there are Catholics around. I mean, there are Catholics that signed the Declaration. Well, there's one that signed the Declaration of Independence, and um, believe it or not, we had a Catholic Chief Justice uh, at the time of this, which shocked me. Um, but Roger Tawney <laughs> was Catholic. 
I went to look for his grave once and found it in a Catholic cemetery. I'm like, wait, what? Um, <laughs> well, they made a mistake. They should have turned left and they turned right. Yeah, but <laughs> no, no, no. But he's from, but he's from Maryland. See, in okay, Maryland, yeah. That's that's a special. Uh, but we started. You know, John Adams says that he doesn't see any. You know, any event that we would ever have diplomatic relations with the Pope. Now, at this point, the Papal States was not the Vatican. The Papal States was Central Italy. Yep. You know, so we didn't have diplomatic relations with Central Italy because we didn't, you know, trust the Pope. And you know, if you look at this, was all throughout the 19th century. I actually just showed a, um, a campaign commercial for Kennedy, this song about Kennedy that has a whole verse in it about wow, well, you know, everybody's free to have their own faith in the United States and it's freedom of religion. So, I mean, this is still being fought in 1960. Yep, it is. Um, so there's this long history. The it goes back to the Reformation, and the idea is that um, Protestantism represents freedom and democracy and, um, you know, sort of a, a democratic church, um, whereas Catholicism represents um, a dictatorship, a tyranny, where you're told where, what to think, and um, do Catholics, you know, there was concern that John Kennedy would be taking his marching orders from the Pope. You know, people were convinced that there'd be a hotline to the Vatican. Now, we know today that John Kennedy was not, you know, particularly faithful in following all the Church's teachings, let's say. Um, Who is? So, you, know, <laughs> you know, well, amen. Uh, but uh, I've raised Catholic myself in Chicago. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it. this was a long part of our history, and uh, you really kind of see it in this war, and you... you uh, you know, you see it a lot in Texas, particularly because they, you know, are going to look down on on Mexicans um, uh, in this period. Uh, so it's it, it, but it goes back to the Reformation. You have to, you know, if you're going to reform and you're going to leave the Catholic Church, you better explain why. And that's always going to be because the Church has lost the Christian way, and we're trying to refine it. Um, so uh, that you, you know, that's. And to be fair, I mean, the Church is not a democracy and, you know, has plenty of things that it has to answer for, as we know today. Um, but, yeah, the anti-Catholicism stuff doesn't age well. Okay. All right. It is customary for us to give our guests the last words on the show. So, Tom, um, in about a minute and a half, uh, would <laughs> you uh, let us know why you think knowing about the Mexican-American uh, the American invasion in Mexico and the people involved on both sides is relevant in today's world. I think it's relevant because this these this is our the biggest immigrant group, the biggest now minority in the country, um, are Latinx, are from Latin America. So I think our relationship with Latin America and our relationship with Mexico um, is particularly important. We've had a lot of anti-immigrant feeling lately. A lot of that is directed at the southern border. Um, and I, you know, I just look at the students that I'm teaching now, uh, and they need to be included. And we need to, that perspective, I think, is increasingly important. So that's why I now think this this war um, has to be kind of rethought of how we look at it. Okay. I couldn't agree with you more. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 455th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zapzaptel. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Thomas Connors, Associate Professor of History at the University of Northern Iowa, who talked with us about the topic of looking for the North American invasion in Mexico City. The history of us for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.